0: Hey, football fans. Welcome back to another episode of the NFL Whip Around. I am Jeff Hartman, joined by KT Smith. Coach, happy new year. How's everything going?
1: Going great. Going great. How, how
0: was your Christmas? Christmas was good. New Year's been off to, to a good start so far. Pittsburgh Steelers are winning football games. What else can you ask <laughs> for, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm sure that that, that makes all the, the
1: non-Steeler fans out there thrilled right now. Yeah.
0: You know, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, when when you made 30, scoring 30 points in a football game seem like it's impossible, and then you do it in back-to-back weeks, you feel like you got a Christmas gift, and that's exactly what the way I feel about the Steelers. But the NFL has been crazy. It's been crazy all year when we think about it from that perspective. And, uh, Coach, the one constant, the one constant, let's get the show off on the right foot, in my opinion, <laughs> and that is talking about the one constant has been awful officiating, just atrocious officiating, maybe was tipped, the tip of the iceberg was the horrible call for illegal touching. I believe was the actual call against the Detroit lions on Saturday night against the Dallas Cowboys. When now they're saying two offensive linemen reported Taylor Decker, who caught the two point conversion was not the one that said that he was reporting as an eligible receiver, a little bit of uh, the Detroit lions, I guess, trying to hoodwink the Cowboys. I don't know, coach. This is just one example of really poor officiating. What's your take on that play though? Let's start there this specific play.
1: The thing that bothers me so much about that play in particular is what Dan Campbell said afterwards, when he said, I went over it and explained it to a T in pregame with them. And that really bothers me because every, every uh, game before the game, the officials come to you as the head coach and you go through the sort of laundry list of questions and they, and they they tell you who's going to be on your sideline and, and what really his sideline policy is and who's calling the timeouts and and is your is your quarterback right-handed or left-handed and your kicker right-footed or left-footed they want to know all these things because they want to know lo- what to look for and that conversation always ends with them asking you is there anything special i should be looking for is there anything that you're going to do that's going to require our attention so if you have a gadget play if you have tackles over if you have something like the lions did where a, a lineman's going to report as eligible you go over it with the with the officials, and you tell them exactly what's going to happen. and And Dan Campbell said that he did that to a T with the officials in that pregame meeting, and then they clearly screwed it up. There is no, what is Taylor Decker doing when he goes over to the head official there in the game? He is reporting as eligible, and the head official screws it up, and then doubles down on the fact that he that he you know he screwed it up, uh, or doubles down on I said I guess his screw up in the post-game presser. And that's the thing that's egregious to me. A, the Lions prepared you for it. B, you messed it up. And then C, you didn't have the professionalism to, to admit that you messed it up in the aftermath.
0: Yeah, that's that's what really stuck with me is that now there, he's, I guarantee he's seeing the, vo- the footage out there, the all 22 look where you can see two linemen going over and he's like, well, maybe, maybe I got the wrong one. And he's trying to find a little loop for himself. I get it. He's backed into a corner. He's got to do something because he's probably afraid of losing his job. I don't think he'll ever lose his job. We'll get to that in a second, but still it's a really bad look for the national football league when a head coach and kudos to Dan Campbell for coming out and saying what he said, because really I think that these players and these coaches need to stand up for each other and state that if if this is such a problem in the NFL, then they got to do something about it and they have to say something. And yes, it might mean you might get fined, but ultimately what is the end game here? It's been awful all season. We've talked about officiating way more than both you or I want to. Now, I'm a conspiracy theorist and I've got gambling on my brain as it pertains to the officiating. But still, is there any faith in your opinion that the league can actually get this thing right?
1: There's no faith in my opinion, because the league has not yet admitted that there's a problem. What do they do? They find players and coaches when they when they bring these issues publicly. and and so far there's been zero accountability. For the officials. Now, this particular crew that worked the Detroit-Dallas game, they probably won't get a playoff game. All right, fine. But what they, what their performance in that game has already had a serious impact on uh, the playoff seeding in the NFC. So, I mean, that's these guys don't make a couple extra bucks because they don't get a playoff game. That doesn't seem to justify the effects of, of what they've done. For me, the only solution really that the NFL can take moving forward is to make these guys full time this is this got to be a, a career this can't be a weekend thing this can't be a thing you do because you're you know like the league is is uh or on the weekends because the league is is unwilling to to turn it into a year round occupation these guys need to be trained year round they need to be able to work in other leagues though it's too the game moves too fast the rule changes are, have been too swift it's too complicated trying to figure out what's a penalty on the fly for for uh, guys not to be prepared 365 days out of the year for it. I don't think the league's going to take that step, but I think that's the only step that they can take to, to minimize some of the egregious mistakes.
0: I hear what you're saying and the league saying, we're going to make these officials full time would definitely help from an optics perspective. I just don't think it's going to matter. I don't think, I, th- I still think they're going to butcher the, 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 the those bang, bang plays because they, they've been taught to err on the side of caution, which makes it really bad. Look, I think that they're still going to misinterpret the rules. I think they're still going to have issues like we saw in that Detroit-Dallas game. I don't think it's going to change anything. and That's just my own personal opinion. It's going to help with optics. I think the NFL would be better off saying, okay, every week it is released the players that got fined for infractions the previous week. For instance, George Pickens against the Bengals in week 16 was fined $16,000 for turning and pointing at a a defender as he ran into the end zone. $16,000. So if the NFL would just open up their books a little bit and say, okay, these officials, they they got docked X number of dollars for the mistake. They own the mistake. They come out and say, we realize we made a mistake it was, it was a bad, it was a bad look, like whatever, say what, say what happened. Don't tell me that they got downgraded from a playoff spot. Like I, that doesn't mean doesn't do anything. I think they need to make sure. And some would say, well, that's kind of counter counterproductive for the league. I don't think so. I think that it would give transparency to what's really happening. And if they make a mistake, they're paying for it. I don't know if you agree or disagree.
1: I just wonder. I mean, first of all, I don't know the answer to this, but I don't know how much an official makes per game in the NFL. Um, and so I, it can't be more than a couple thousand dollars because if there's 17 games in the season. And I mean, let, let's say let's go high end and say they're paying them 10 grand a game. That's one hundred and seventy thousand dollars for a part time position. I don't think that it's that much. Uh, so so if, so let's so let's say they make uh, whatever, eight thousand dollars a game and you find them two thousand dollars because they made a major mistake. I think a lot of fans are going to look at that and be like two thousand dollars. That's nothing. But it but it is something significant in terms of their actual salary. If you want to make an impact, I think the dollar amounts got to stand out to people. Well, you got to pay them more. And how do you pay them more? You have to make it a, a full time job. And so, right, you might be if you hear, hey, an official got fined ten thousand dollars for for an egregious mistake. That might get people's attention. That might make people say, wow, the league's really taking this seriously but that $10,000 right now is probably more than that individual makes for the entire game. Yeah. So I don't think that they can do that.
0: Now you're, you're right in that regard. And that, that full-time stuff will definitely help regulate some of that stuff. I think another part of this is that they always kind of the officiating is always kind of under this veil or behind a veil. I should say, uh, I think about when, you know, an, an official makes a really egregious call that the media say we, we want an explanation. So they have like a hand selected reporters get to go and talk to this, official back behind closed doors and then the pool reporters release the transcript to everyone else. It's really crazy. Hey, put them up in front of a a pool put them up in front of the media. Like that's what they should do. Yeah. I like that. Make that guy go in front of the Detroit press and answer questions about what exactly happened. Make me go, whatever Dallas too. That's fine. Make them own the mistake. And that's something the players have to do. Coaches have to do. Why are the officials any different? And they'll say, well, they're part of the shield. I don't want to hear that BS. I think accountability is important, and that would be a step in the right direction. But we don't want to spend (laughs) too much time talking about officiating. Anything else, Coach, before we move on? Oh, real
1: quick. You know what we need? What we need is a congressional inquiry. So now we can get one dysfunctional (laughs) body to investigate another dysfunctional body.
0: (laughs) Your tax dollars at work. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Now the next topic is something I wanted to talk about. And I preface this last week. I am enamored by coaching decisions and I'm talking about within their own staff. Bill Cower was on the Pat McAfee show last week, and this was prior to the Cincinnati Bengals Steelers game. And of course, Pat is asking him a lot about the Steelers and he talked about how Mike, in his opinion, this is coach Cower, Mike Tomlin's going to have to make some really tough decisions amongst his own staff. And he talked about how when he was a head coach, he had to make some really tough decisions with people that he considered friends of his. He had to let them go because ultimately he said, I owe it to the team, the organization to win games and I have to do whatever it takes to get there. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have his own shortcomings, but when it comes to building his own staff, I think about the Baltimore Ravens, you go back just what three seasons ago, they had wink Martindale as their defensive coordinator Greg Roman is the offensive coordinator, and let's not pretend like things were horrible in Baltimore. Outside of their quarterback getting hurt all the time, they were a really good team, a perennial playoff contender, and a lot of times preseason picks for maybe a long postseason run or a Super Bowl uh, berth. And what does he do? He cans them both. He gets rid of Wink Martindale. I wish I knew the guy that, that took his place. I'm sure you do. And we know that Todd Munkin takes over on the, on the offensive side. That is that's what I wanted to pick your brain with here. Making these changes to a coaching staff sometimes they're not the popular choice, but they can really pay dividends. What are your thoughts on both Coach Cowers comments as well as what the Baltimore Ravens have done in the past few years?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, as far as the, the the comments from Coach Cowher, he's he's spot on. You you look at uh, when you assess your staff in the aftermath of a season, you look at a couple of things. One is is obviously do you do you still have faith in them in their ability to do their job? Another is do you have faith in them in their ability to uh, fit into the broader core of what the team needs? A lot of people come in with quote unquote their system from a coordinator perspective, and you and you say a guy will come in and he'll say this is what I want to do. This is what I know best. And, but if you can't fit that to what the team does best, then you need to move on. And I think what the ra- the Ravens realized was that. Greg Roman's system, while effective in many regards, was creating two huge problems in Baltimore. One, it was exposing Lamar Jackson to too many shots, uh, and two, it, he was just turning the football over too much as a result. And 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 so much of that was based out of Greg Roman's philosophy on putting big personnel on the field. The Ravens were a 12-22 uh 13 personnel team, tight ends, fullbacks, condensed formations, etc. And To John, you know, John uh, John Hollerball's credit and to the credit of the organization, they they understood that if we can spread the field, reduce the number of guys in the box, give Lamar Jackson cleaner sight lines, uh, allow him more space, he's going to be tough to stop. And they and they reached into the college ranks and found a guy in Todd Munkin who could who could do that. And it's working out fabulously for them. Uh, I give them a lot of credit for essentially saying we have a system that is good, but it's not good enough. And, and we need to, to in order to, to take advantage of Lamar Jackson's full potential, fit that system to uh, his skill set. And, and it was a tough decision, for sure. I've had to fire coaches. Uh, I fired a guy who, who I grew up with and a guy who I was tight with. Uh, and it was a very similar situation where he had had a ton of success. He won a state championship as an offensive coordinator running a certain system. He wanted to bring it to our school. We, we brought it there we we used it for a couple of seasons it didn't i didn't see see it fitting our kids i couldn't get him to adjust and i had to let him go because again man his system was successful it just wasn't successful with what we were doing and i feel as though that was similar in baltimore
0: it's it's got to be a difficult and you know this is when ownership comes into play as well because you know, what are you going to do if you go to the owner and say, look, I need to clean house. And with the Baltimore Ravens, when you're talking about them, like like I said, it's not like they were the worst team in the division, the worst team in the league. They're still moving the football. They're scoring points. That's tough decisions. Tough decisions have to be made from time to time. And I, I don't know. I, I got to give credit where credit's due. And you see some of these teams that, you know, they're firing their head coaches already. There's going to be more fired after the season, there's going to be some tough decisions that have to be made. The good teams typically find ways to make those right decisions, but I I don't know, Coach. It it's got to be a difficult decision when and you know you said you made it yourself. You're friends with somebody. You've worked with them for a long time, but it's a business. And what what is it that Mike Tomlin said? Scared money don't make money. I think is what yeah. he said.
1: <laughs> well, we're, we're going to see if Mike Tomlin uh, puts that to the test here because the Steelers have looked pretty darn good on offense the last two mm-hmm. weeks. Maybe that maybe they'll do it again in the season finale against a Baltimore team that's expected to rest some guys. Uh it would be very tempting for the Steelers to say that the the new offensive coordinator duo that they have in place that replaced Matt Canada uh paired with Mason Rudolph hey, maybe that'll be good enough for us going forward. Maybe we leave those guys in place and we and we, and we pick up where, where we left off in 2024. But that, that could also be fool's gold. That could be teams that haven't had enough film on what they're doing, on what Mason Rudolph is doing and and Eddie Faulkner and Mike Sullivan, the new coordinators. And you get a whole off season to study it and diagnose the tendencies, et cetera, et cetera. And now that you come back in 2024 and, and it looks bad again. And, and now the Steelers have missed that opportunity to find a high level coordinator. So I I really feel that Mike Tomlin's got to take a hard look at what the Steelers are doing on offense. And and if he doesn't feel it's sustainable, then they got to move on. Even, even, even if they've had significant success the last few
0: weeks of the year. Yeah. We'll have to see how that plays out. Let's go to our next topic. Denver Broncos, man, what is going on in Denver? I mean, not only did the team kind of rebound and, and come back from the dead, essentially, Now there's all these reports about how Russell Wilson was told, I think this was after their bye week, that they wanted him to change and alter his injury guarantees in his contract, which totaled over $30 million. And if he didn't, they were going to bench him. Well, then he rattled off several wins. How are you going to bench a quarterback when your team's winning games like that? Nonetheless, the situation ends with Russell Wilson being benched. He didn't play uh, Sunday in this week 17 He's not going to play in week 18, and now they're, they're, they're on their way to a divorce. But what, what do you think about this, this whole situation, Coach? This is wild to me.
1: So the, I was always fascinated by how the Russell Wilson, Sean Payton dynamic would play out. I mean, Wilson, he kind of had an ugly divorce with a, with a players coach in Pete Carroll in Seattle, not necessarily Carol, but with the organization. And that was an organization that had had given him a lot of what of, of what he had wanted over the years. And now you get a now you get a, a, a much more uh sort of aggressive, gruff, in your face style in Sean Payton, who's who's determined to overhaul the culture in Denver. And so heading into the year it was like, wow, this is going to be must see TV. And it certainly has blown up. If in fact Denver did ask for him to waive that uh that injury money—that'll certainly be something the NFLPA has to look into. I, I don't know if there's any legal grounds there. Uh, can you can you do that? Can you like ask a guy to basically like give back guaranteed money uh, at the threat of his job? I I, I don't know what the lawyerly uh, talk is on yeah. that one, but it but it certainly seems bad for morale. It it seems as though if you're the Denver Broncos, this word this is out now. This word is out. How are you going to attract future free agents? How are you going to attract people to trust you when you sit down at negotiation time, knowing that they, that that one of those high profile players in the league, they, they did this. to? I think that's a bad organizational
0: look. Let me, let me get this take from you here. Cause I, I, I find this fascinating from a fan perspective, you know, right now everyone's like, well, you know, it's a, it's a cruel business, man. Cause this is a business. The NFL is a business. There's a lot of money being handed out from ownership to the league, et cetera, all around. They're spreading it all around. And because it's a cruel business, sometimes teams will do this, and they'll say, hey, change your contract, or we're going to pull the rug out from underneath you. People always, fans, I should say, always side with the organization. They always do. Yet when there's a player who says, you know what? I feel like I'm kind of outperforming my contract. I want a new one. Oh, my gosh. He's the most selfish player in the world what a turd he is. like this guy's just he's so selfish, he doesn't care about the team. he's only worried about the bottom line. When I see teams like teams like the Broncos doing this, which I for a, I, I don't even for a second believe that this is the only time this has happened. It's just a high profile athlete who is willing to stand up and talk about it. No one's taking the side of the player here. Very few are. They're all like, well, you know, this is a tough business. Coach, what's your take on that? Do you see it the same way I do? Is this fans always seem to support the organization. And yet when the player just stands up and says, well, wait a second, you're, you all are doing this, that, and the other. I want mine, they're viewed as selfish.
1: Yes. I think that that is true, especially fans are passionate about their favorite team, obviously. And, and you don't want a single individual to, hold your team hostage so to speak and the the amount of money that, that that players are making it's almost impossible for fans not to see them as selfish when they ask for more i'll never forget the famous uh video of terrell owens doing sit-ups in his driveway <laughs> while he was holding out from the eagles because he believed that the 47 million dollars he was be- getting paid wasn't enough and, and his famous quote was i got a family to feed and I mean, that that just people <laughs> erupted in Philadelphia. You can't feed your family on forty seven million dollars. You got to be kidding me, you know, and and so he was always painted as being selfish. But Terrell Owens had a, had a point. And his point was this. I'm the 10th highest paid wide receiver in the NFL right now. And I'm the best receiver in the NFL. Or if he wasn't the best, he was clearly one of the two or three best. And I'm not being paid my market value. And if so if you took that argument out into society, nobody complains. If a, if a top lawyer charges X number of dollars per hour, so long as they get the results, if I'm the top lawyer in the business, I'm going to charge you whatever I want and you're going to pay it. Cause you need me and yeah. that, and that doesn't translate for whatever reason to sports. So I don't know, is it because Russell Wilson has shown himself to be less likable than everybody thought over the last couple of years? Do they think he's a diva? Do they think, you know, he's just a prima donna? I don't know, but, but it, it feels to me that this is particularly unfair on the organization's standpoint to basically say we guaranteed you this money and now it's not working out the way we want it to. So we're going to take it off the table.
0: Yeah. Don't hate Russell Wilson. In this case, the Broncos can only hate themselves. The man in the mirror that gave them the contract. That's who you have to hate. It's like the Browns with the Deshaun Watson deal. Now the Browns have to be watching this with a very close eye because if they're able to get out from underneath this guaranteed money, you better believe they're going to try and duplicate the process to get out of their $280 million guaranteed contract to Deshaun Watson, especially after Joe Flacco continues to light it up. So this is going to be really intriguing to see how this plays out down the road. Uh, could litigation happen? Absolutely. I think it could. It absolutely could. And I know that the NFLPA was already brought in. Russell Wilson said that the NFL was involved. So they are aware of what happened. It's just a matter of whether, anything else is going to happen. Where do you think Russell Wilson will end up though? Pittsburgh. Oh no, gosh. Don't <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, that's a great question. Uh, on one hand, you have Joe Flacco giving organizations the hope that the right guy late in his career can come in and stabilize uh, a, a franchise that has a good core in place. I mean, Cleveland's winning b- because of Joe Flacco. Yes, but they're also, play good D and they can run the ball and those types of things. On the other hand, it's buyer beware with with these high-priced veterans when you look at also at what teams have been able to do, at least in short periods, with some lesser-known individuals at the quarterback position. So I don't know, man. I don't know what the market for Russell Wilson's going to be. Uh, I don't know how the contract situation affects future negotiations. It's really going to be fascinating to watch.
0: Yeah, it is going to be interesting because I, I did hear some reports that Wilson, because he's going to be guaranteed that money, uh, he's willing to pay for veteran minimum next year. He's already going to be getting the $37 million, I believe, from Denver, so he wouldn't need a gaudy contract from a new team because he's getting that money guaranteed still from the Broncos. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Let's talk about a more uplifting story, and that's the Los Angeles Rams, who were 3-6 and six at one point this season, left for dead, and then they come out and they beat the Giants, 26-25. The Steelers beat the Seahawks. They're in the playoffs now. They're in the playoffs. And you know what's funny? You you brought this up in the notes. You said, you know, if Joe Flacco is the comeback player of the year or the Rams the comeback team of the year, I'll, I'll say this. I'll go a step further. I think Sean McVay should get some votes for coach of the year because when you think about what he's done and he's continued to keep his team together, no one thought they'd be any good. Coach, what's your thoughts on the comeback of the Rams and them making the postseason?
1: Yeah, really interesting. Great job by him. They're, they're doing it with a young team. They, they had a great rookie draft class. Uh, they've got a, a great second-year running back in Kieran Williams. Uh, they just it, it just felt like they were a team there earlier in the season that was caught between two worlds, these aging veterans like Aaron Donald and and, and Matthew Stafford who can still play, but were, were, we're definitely getting up there. Uh, parts of that Rams team from a few years ago that won a Super Bowl, And now maybe the, maybe the team was in transition going to turn it over to the young guys. And this was going to be one of those years where they only won six or seven games as they transitioned from one group to another. But uh, McVay certainly found a way to hold them together. I mean, one of the things about a a, a guy like McVay is when you have a system, I mean, he's got a system in place and, and that system has proven to be successful and you can find the right pieces then you've always got a shot. Teams teams that, that are system-oriented, and by system I mean they've got an approach to playing the game that has been successful for them, uh, and that oftentimes requires you just to identify the right players to put into that system. Once you once you, once you get those guys acclimated, those systems have proven to be successful, and, and you can kind of get hot like this. And I think that this is what's happened with the Rams. The, the flip side of that is teams that struggle who are not system-based who don't have a a set of principles or a scheme to fall back on they start searching and they start looking and they start throwing the proverbial you know pasta against the wall to see what will stick and that's where it can really fall apart that's what you're seeing i think in like for example in carolina where they just don't know what to do with Bryce young they don't know how to approach it they they're just they're sort of trying different ideas every week and and it's kind of falling apart so when it got tough in la i think McVeigh leaned into a system And, and, and the young guys got a little bit more experience and they kind of came along and now you're seeing the results of that. So, so there's a lot to be said for the foundation of a great coach that what they can build and, and how they can use that obviously to overcome adversity.
0: I, I, I gotta be honest. I'm really hoping, and I don't know, maybe if you would be as keen on this as I would you looking forward to maybe a Matthew Stafford return to Detroit in the postseason? oh that'd be awesome that would be that great would be awesome.
1: stafford versus golf yep. uh, yeah that would, that would be good. something but you're not a, you're not a golf guy i know that
0: no he's good in the dome and he'll get at least one home playoff game but uh no, it, no I, I don't think he can do it and get get he'll, he'll get you there he's like jimmy garoppolo he'll get you there but he's not gonna win it for you um stafford has proven he can win it but i just think those storylines would be pretty cool because the rams that th- that is a comeback story like well, it, it's essentially the Broncos if the Broncos actually finished it and got into the postseason. Yeah. everyone was like, yeah, they're done. They're, they're done. McVay's talking about retirement or going into the booth and doing some TV work, and they actually completed it. They they finished the comeback. So I think they would be, a, if there was a comeback team of the year, I think that would they would definitely be up there for that, no doubt about it. Uh, let's go to Carolina's loss. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about here, believe it or not. Let's start off with the owner throwing a drink on fans. <laughs> Uh, David Depper has been talked about on our podcast already this season with his knee jerk reaction of firing Frank Reich, who he handpicked to groom and help Bryce young. And that hasn't worked out. And if did you see the video of him throwing that drink on the, the Jaguar fan? No, I did not. I oh, did you not haven't seen the video. I mean, it's, not. it's clear that he has a drink in his hand. These Jaguar fans are chirping down below him and he just dumps the drink over his over the, over the glass. Throws the plastic cup and walks out. And so there's people that are saying like this could he could be fined pretty heavily. But uh, I don't know if you had a take on on that decision by David. Well, I mean, Trump. this is
1: this is the same guy who said, and I, I think I, I quoted this a few weeks ago. But that you know, when he goes into a restaurant, and he gets bad service. He just thinks about buying the restaurant so he can fire everybody. I mean, clearly he has disdain for the little people. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> hedge fund billionaire who just doesn't want to yeah. hear it from the the peons. So, I mean, I, I, why why would you want to play for that guy? I mean, he's going to write your, you a check. That's why I guess, but it's the NFL, blah, blah, blah. But if you could play somewhere else,
0: man, I would think you might want to. Yeah. Or, or if you're a coach, like they're going to have to fill that head coaching vacancy. Who wants to go work for that guy? Yeah, exactly. He handpicked Frank Reich and he's fired already. And he didn't get through one year with the, with the quarterback they hand selected. I don't know. But anyways, the loss on Sunday clinched the top overall pick. Uh, for the Bears because they traded that pick to the – the Bears traded the pick for uh, the Panthers taking Bryce Young. What are your thoughts, way too early thoughts, on what the Bears should do with that top pick?
1: I like Justin Fields more than most. And if I were the Bears, I would draft Marvin Harrison Jr., who I think is fantastic, and pair him with DJ Moore and, and let Justin Fields have some weapons and grow into that because the Bears play decent defense. Uh, I'm not picking. I don't, there's not a quarterback in this upcoming draft who I'm 100% sold on, who I think is a slam dunk, and I, I haven't studied it enough yet. You know, this is a little bit down the road still, and everybody's going to start looking at that stuff after the playoffs. But I haven't. I I, I don't think there's a guy in college right now who, who who says to me he's a can't miss prospect at quarterback. Now maybe the Bears can trade that pick and, and get a bunch of, of of picks in return, but I think Harrison's fantastic. And I think you pair him with DJ Moore, and and you give Justin Fields some of the weapons that he needs. He's going to grow into the position.
0: So this is a turning point for the bears, in my opinion, and it's all based around Justin Fields. If they like Justin Fields and they think he is that guy. Okay. So we're, we're not, we're not in the market for a quarterback. Then there are teams that are in the market for a quarterback, you know, whether this class is as good as last year's that's who cares. there's teams that will always be in the market for a quarterback. And so if I'm the bears, I'm like, Hey, phones there, pick it up. What do you want to offer? You want, you want to swap first. You want to give me a first next year. If they do believe that Justin Fields is that guy, then I think they could get shoot. They might even get Harrison if they were to trade back to three or four because of everyone that's going to be a quarterback needy team. And they're still able to get weapons, wide receivers. I mean, any more, it's not difficult to get a wide receiver. Look at what the Steelers have done with some of their second, third round picks that have come in and been players. Like they, they, they've been capable players. I don't know if you have to spend the first overall pick on a wide receiver. However, he's really good. <laughs> he is a really well-rounded receiver out of Ohio state. So, and he did declare right coach.
1: Yeah. Uh, and he didn't play, he didn't play in the bowl game. And okay. Um, so it's funny, man. Uh, the Steelers, yes, fantastic at drafting receivers. The Patriots, horrible at it. Horrible. I don't know where the Bears fall in that. I mean, they certainly didn't evaluate receivers well when they traded for Chase Claypool, uh, but they—I don't know where they fall in all that. How 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 well do they feel as though they develop guys? Uh, I think you're right. If they could move back a couple spots and and land Harrison. Yeah, Uh, that would that would be ideal. Just the notion of pairing him with DJ Moore, who I love, I love as a wide receiver, I think is really uh, enticing if you're Chicago.
0: Yeah, but again, it's all based on how they view Justin Fields, because there's a lot of people that aren't sold on him. And if they're not sold on him, that changes everything. Now you're looking at one of those quarterbacks, you might be looking to trade Justin Fields. Things could get interesting for Chicago, but boy, it's looking like they fleece the Panthers more and more every single week, every <laughs> single week. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's do our player profile this week. You want to talk about Bo Melton. Go ahead, coach.
1: Yeah. Bo Melton, probably a guy that mo- a lot of fans don't know much about. Uh, he was a six round pick of the Seahawks two years ago. Uh, wound up on a, on a couple practice squads, receiver for the green Bay Packers now who had a breakout game on Sunday, first 100-yard game of his career, first touchdown catch of his career. And the reason I bring up Bo Melton is he's a local guy, grew up down in my area here near Ocean City, played for a rival high school, Cedar Creek High School, who we play just about every year, and uh, played Bo Melton when he was in school, had a couple great games against their team. Bo Melton is from a really uh, excellent athletic family down in this area. I, I played against his father, Gary, who's my age, Gary went on to be a running back at Rutgers. His mom was a basketball player at Rutgers. And his brother, Max Melton, is now a corner at Rutgers who is going to be uh, drafted in the NFL. He's a very, very good cornerback. He's got one more year left. But the real reason I bring up Bo Melton is this, man. These are the things that people don't see uh, and that are really worth sharing. One of my assistant coaches, Frank uh, Lasasso, who has been with me for a long time, his his son Frankie was diagnosed two years ago with leukemia, and and it's been obviously very tough on the family, and, and they've had to they've had to undergo just a, a, a miserable experience. You're a seven year old, so Frankie's Frankie's now nine years old, but but when your seven year old is diagnosed with leukemia, it's terrifying, and and driving him up to Philadelphia a couple of days a week for chemotherapy for two years it was a grind on the family. Frank stepped away from coaching with us. So that he could just be with his his son and, and go through that experience, and people in this area have been wonderful. And, and when and when you know there, there's a a fight like Frankie campaign that's going on that's raised a lot of money, but uh, somebody locally reached out to Bo Melton when he was a senior at Rutgers two years ago and just asked because we'd competed against uh, him when he was he was at Cedar Creek High School. Hey, anything you guys you can do for the Lasasso family? They were hoping hey maybe he'd get him a, a signed football or a signed paraclete, something like that. Bo Melton got the entire Rutgers football team to to make a video for little Frankie Lasasso. Uh, everybody on the team signed various gear, whether they were jerseys, balls, and came and visited Frankie in the hospital. He did all of this, by the way, without any media fanfare. He didn't he didn't film any of it. He didn't put anything on Instagram. He didn't seek any accolades for any of this. He did it out of the goodness of his heart because he had never even met Frankie or the Lasasso family. Uh And so, you know, again, man, these are the things in the shadows that I think some of these, some of these players do. You hear a lot of bad, bad publicity about guys when they do, you know, unfortunate or even awful things, but you don't often hear about the, the great deeds that they do. And so I was thrilled to see Bo Melton have a breakout game on Sunday, because he's a great kid, man, great young man. And the things that he did for Frankie Lasasso and for for football in this area here in South Jersey uh, are pretty remarkable.
0: That's a great story. And then like you said, those stories need to be told more often because a lot of times athletes are painted as selfish and they're, they only care about themselves and nothing is bigger than them and their own cause. It's a great story. Bo Melton, thanks for sharing that, Coach. I appreciate it. So hey, why don't you uh do you have any idea what's coming up on the call sheet this week? Love to give you the fans out there a preview.
1: <laughs> oh, you're gonna love it, man. We're talking about the dynamic between coaches and referees, right? So I going to talk yes. a little bit about, about the interaction in both my own experience and then you know, through through what I've observed in the NFL, et cetera, of, of coaches and referees from pregame to post game, the in-game interaction. What what you know what really goes on between coaches? And the officials during games, what kind of gamesmanship exists? How do you, what are some of the things that you, that you want in an official as a coach? Some of the things that you, that you hate in an official as a coach. So we'll, we'll take a little bit of a dive onto that.
0: I know lacrosse and football are different sports, but as a coach, like you always knew that line that you could go up to it in terms of (laughs) communicating with the officials, but you can't step over it. I only stepped over that line a handful of times in my 13 years as a head coach, but I I have stepped over that line on more than one occasion. But it's (laughs) a different sport. (laughs)
1: I'll say this. I've never gotten a penalty as a coach on the sideline. Uh, in, in football, and, and that's 30-some years of coaching and being on the sidelines. I coached my son's 9-, 10-year-old travel basketball team last year. I got teed up twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, in football, nobody can hear what you're saying, right? If the if, oh, if yeah. fans could hear some of the things that you say or that happen on the field, they would yeah. be, like, uh, mind blown. whereas in basketball, I kind of forgot. Oh, everybody hears it.
0: <laughs> I've been playing. <laughs> I got, I got pl- like, three times in 13 years. So – not too bad. It could have been worse. But then you got to tell the players, you got to pick me up. Come on. Like, I didn't get yep. ejected from any games because that, that would be bad. But, all right, Coach, good stuff as always. Thank you for your time. Why don't you tell them where they can find you on Twitter?
1: Yeah, at Smith FFSN on Twitter.
0: There you go. You can find me at Jay Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N underscore P-I-T. You can find both coach smith and my work on the pittsburgh steelers on the steel curtain network anywhere you get your podcast search steel curtain network also check us out on steel curtain com. we do appreciate it until next week coach have a good day we'll see you